so in general, it's been a great time to be involved with HCM because we've had, you know, high quality, large um, data sets um, to look at, you know, looking at all these um, you know, important questions in HCM. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this is a series on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and uh, brought to you by an unrestricted educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb. And this podcast is intended for uh, use by healthcare professionals in the United States. And to start off the series, we have um, as our first guest, uh, Dr. Carolyn Ho. Uh, Dr. Carolyn Ho is a cardiologist and, and medical director of uh, the cardiovascular genetics program at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, and uh, she is um, an expert in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, has had interest in uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and has published several seminal manuscripts on the topic. Um, so with that introduction, Dr. Ho, welcome on the show. Welcome to Parallax, and thank you so much for doing this for us. Great. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to join you. Uh, thank you. So um, I'm going to start by asking you about um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, just an overview. And, you know, for the audience who are listening, uh, the focus of the first um, episode in this series is um, a diagnostic overview of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, you know, how to establish a diagnosis, when to suspect hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, how to differentiate it from, you know, just left ventricular hypertrophy, which we encounter quite frequently as cardiologists, and then how to initiate the diagnostic algorithm. So, you know, that's the focus of this discussion. Um, so let me... Um, let me begin by asking you, Dr. Ho, when is it that you are referred um, a patient with a suspicion of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? When does that happen in a clinical setting for you? Hmm. Right. Um, so a great question, like one of the fundamental questions, like trying to establish the correct diagnosis. Um, and it all really hinges on um, identifying unexplained left ventricular hypertrophy. So increased left ventricular wall thickness that is not otherwise accounted for by pressure overload, like um, uncontrolled hypertension or aortic stenosis, and also not accounted for by potential storage or infiltrative conditions like Fabry disease or cardiac amyloidosis. So it's really important to do your due diligence, to make sure that there aren't other um, uh, mitigating contributing factors that um, will and indicate that you're dealing with secondary or acquired uh, left ventricular hypertrophy or increased left ventricular wall thickness, because the real um, the the key feature of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is that it's primary and un, um, otherwise unexplained. Uh, yes, so I think for the audience, I think what'll be interesting—not obviously interesting, but important to know—would be um, the threshold at which um, you would suspect. Um, you know, left ventricular hypertrophy, which is outside the norm for, you know, uncontrolled benign essential hypertension. So what are the, what are the cutoffs that we use for both the interventricular septum as well as the, as well as the left ventricular posterior wall? Cause you know, I think those are two important uh, measurements yeah. in you know, for better or for worse, right now we are really stuck with um, a dichotomous um, definition of, um, uh, you know, with a threshold of left ventricular wall thickness um, to define disease. And the threshold that is, um, you know, currently used um, or and historically has been used is greater than 15 millimeters. Um, so if you have um, max um, maximal LV wall thickness greater than 15 millimeters anywhere in the left ventricle, um, that um, uh, will trigger thinking about the diagnosis of um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy if there's no other clear um, explanation. And um, trying to differentiate hypertrophic cardiomyopathy from hypertensive heart disease is a really common uh, clinical dilemma. You know, how much hypertension for how long is enough to account for um, you know, some degree of, of uh, hypertrophic remodeling, you know, can be very difficult to determine. Um, you know, I, I would say that if you're um, 
if your maximum wall thickness is in the high teens or low 20 um, millimeters, you know, that's more than we would expect um, from uh, even uh, you know, fairly substantial um, hypertension. Um, if your hypertension has been relatively well controlled, then we really wouldn't expect it to, to um, account for, you know, um, much um, hypertrophy at all. So it's, you know, the people in the, in the middle ground where they've had some degree of hypertension that, you know, they've been perhaps avoidant of medical care, you're not sure how long, um, you know, it's been uncontrolled, it seems to be, you know, uh, fairly substantial. Those, you know, the individuals, I think that we um, oftentimes um, um, are uncertain as to whether it's hypertensive heart disease or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, so you can try to gain um, exquisite um, uh, hypertensive control and, you know, get the blood pressures down to normal range um, and re-image in, you know, several months um, to see if there's been any attenuation of, of, hyper, of hypertrophy, you know, once the load is reduced, that would point you more in the direction of hypertensive heart disease rather than a primary hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, and you also bring up um, a good uh, point about the morphology and the exact location of hypertrophy also sometimes giving us a clue. Um, we would expect hypertensive heart disease to result primarily in concentric um, left ventricular hypertrophy, uh, whereas classically um, primary hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you know, and particularly um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that's attributable to um, pathogenic sarcomere variants um, um, results in asymmetric septal hypertrophy. Um, so the um, maximal LB wall thickness is going to be in, you know, in, the, in the septum, um, oftentimes the proximal mid-septum, um, leading to the classic uh, reverse septal curvature that um, we see um, most commonly in primary um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, we use a slightly lower threshold um, if there's a family history of HCM or if a person is known to carry um, a pathogenic sarcomere variant. And in those situations where there's a higher a priori risk of, um, of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, uh, uh, maximum left ventricular wall thickness of 13 millimeters is um, thought to be adequate to start triggering um, the diagnosis. Uh, thank you. Uh, you know, I think um, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you uh, a common clinical scenario, which, uh, you know, I encounter. And, you know, for me, at least as a as a clinician, uh, take, talking to the patient or to the referring provider, um, my threshold for obtaining cardiac magnetic resonance imaging or cardiac MRI, which has become a very important tool in appropriately recognizing as well as risk stratifying these patients uh, is, is pretty low. And that is... Uh, um, patient in their 60s, mid 60s, um, could be a male, could be a female, um, with sigmoid septum um, and some left ventricular hypertrophy, which is which meets the threshold for 15 millimeters at the interventricular septum. And then you sort of ask them, you know, is there any family history of sudden deaths? You know, have you ever had any syncopal events? And we're going, going to go over some of the common symptoms, common presenting symptoms of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in a little bit. Um, and then, you know, then you're sort of in a conundrum, you know, is this benign essential hypertension or is this, um, you know, idiopathic hypertrophic subiotic stenosis or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? And in that instance, um, you know, my threshold for obtaining cardiac magnetic resonance imaging is low because there are some telltale features in cardiac MRI and, you know, you'll go over them with us, which uh, may indicate you toward a diagnosis of HCM. Uh, you know, because that certainly has implications not only for that patient, but also for the family. So do you want to go over this, this commonly encountered clinical scenario a little bit for the audience? Yeah, sure. Um, I, you know, I think that um, cardiac MRI is a great adjunct um, to uh, helping better characterize and diagnose um, patients, um, you know, particularly if echo image, you know, echo imaging is suboptimal um, and the, the definition of the um, endocardial and epicardial borders is um, not great um, and you have a hard time you know getting accurate wall, wall thickness measurements you know cardiac MRI can be incredibly helpful um, you can also um, get a sense as to myocardial fibrosis um, with late gadolinium enhancement um, patients with hypertensive um, heart disease can have some um, um, degree of fibrosis um, uh, but it's usually relatively scant um, 
the majority of patients, you know, over 60, 65% of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy will have some amount of late gadolinium enhancement and it tends to be more um, pre prominent than it is in hypertensive heart disease. So it's hard to tell in an individual patient if you have a small amount of uh, late gadolinium enhancement, that won't tell you necessarily whether it's um, hypertensive heart disease or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, but if there's a, you know, a substantial amount of late gadolinium enhancement, that would certainly tilt you more towards hypertrophic cardiomyopathy than just hypertensive of heart disease and that morphology that you um, that you're alluding to where it's really just that discrete upper septal thickening where you have that upper septal bulge that's very non-specific um, and you know actually quite unlikely to be caused uh, to be associated with um, pathogenic sarcomere variants and, prim and primary hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and you know more likely to be seen you know in um, uh, you know, uh, you know, in the older population, particularly if there's a background of, of hypertension. So you know, that discrete upper septal thickening um, wouldn't necessarily lead you down the path um, towards hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because it is quite non-specific and quite common. Um, other things that you can see sometimes um, on uh, cardiac MRI that can help lead you towards other etiologies um, are, uh, you, you can get this very kind of hazy, patchy, um, uh, diffuse lake adenine enhancement with cardiac amyloidosis, and if your um, if your CMR lab is also able to quantify extracellular volume fraction by using T1 mapping, um, uh, patients with cardiac amyloidosis have some of the highest ECV values that we see, in, you know, in terms of um, a myocardial disorder. So if you have somebody that has hazy, um, diffuse lake ad um, and really high ECV values, like in the forty percent or thereabouts, um, that that you know would um, you know, might trigger you to think about cardiac amyloidosis. Um, excellent. Thank you for going over the some of the differentiating um, features on cardiac MRI for some of the other differential diagnoses we consider when um, encountered with a patient with um, a thickened left ventricular um, septum. Um, the one thing, and you know, this is, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the one thing which I was taught or, or something which I've actually kept in mind for the boards is um, fibrosis at the insertion of the RV to the LV, so it's RV insertion fibrosis. Is that something which is telltale for HCM or is that something which you would see in, in other disease states as well? Yeah, that's also pretty nonspecific. So if you, yes, um, you have, you know, kind of a, a crossing of fibers um, as the, you know, you know, as the, um, uh, RV wall is meeting the LV wall in the, in the septum right there at the RV insertion point. Um, and you can have you know, a, a spot of late gadolinium enhancement there you know, quite commonly. Um, and so that's a, a relatively non-specific feature. And um, if that's the only place where there's late gadolinium enhancement, um, then I would not consider that um, suggestive of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You see it you know, actually you know, pretty frequently. Understood. Um, I think is a, is a good point for us to to talk about uh, some of the symptoms uh, for these patients, and you know what would what should or what would accelerate uh, a diagnostic algorithm for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. What are some of the uh, symptoms which which worry you for you know someone having a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? What are some of the leading questions you may ask in clinic for these patients? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. And, and actually, just if um, you know, uh, just to finish out the conversation about the late gadolinium enhancement, um, the, in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you typically see um, you know condensed patches of late gadolinium enhancement in the most hypertrophy parts of the other ventricle. So that's where you would want to to look for late gad um, in in um, HCM. Um, and in terms of symptoms, um, effort intolerance is really probably um, the most common symptom that um, that um, that troubles patients. Um, so just difficulty doing physical activity, you know, um, in that difficulty is in, in, you know, how much physical activity people do is, you know, of course, quite variable from person to person. Um, but um, typically pe people will describe shortness of breath, sometimes lightheadedness or um, chest discomfort um, with um, physical activity. Um, and, um, you know, uh, a couple of common features that are a little bit more, um, uh, the characteristic of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is that um, patients will oftentimes feel not great when they first start out, um, um, you know, doing, 
their exercise or, you know, if they are you know, walking, hiking, running, biking, you know, they'll describe, you know, struggling a little more um, at the initiation of exercising, you know, for a few 10, 15 minutes into it. And then, you know, the things will kind of settle down and be able to, to um, continue with that, that um, rough warm up phase, I think, um, is something that we commonly hear from our patients with HCM. And then also exacerbation of symptoms postprandially is, um, is a common um, complaint as well. Um, how often do you see um, syncope um, as the referring symptom that needs to be worked up for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? I would say relatively uncommonly, um, especially in the adult population. It, you know, tends to be perhaps a little bit more common in um, in younger um, patients and in the pediatric age range. Where, um, if, um, but you know, there can be a lot of other causes. Um, or, you know. Tr- uh, triggers or contributing factors to syncope. So it's really important as always to get a, a really good history um, and try to tease apart, you know, does it seem to be situational or vasovagal syncope or, or really worrisome syncope that it makes you concerned for an arrhythmic um, uh, uh, um, uh, trigger for it. So um, again, because the history is, it's super important to try to um, really characterize the syncope, relatively uncommon, I would say. Yeah, and then is, uh, un- unfortunately, um, sudden cardiac death still one of the most common symptoms of, like, presenting symptoms in, in the young for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Well, I, um, I think that the, the sudden cardiac death is more common in younger patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you know, kind of um, people when they're in late adolescence or early adulthood um, being more at risk and having the highest prevalence um, of um, sudden death. Fortunately, you know, across the board in, in, in HCM, uh, sudden death is relatively uncommon, um, but it, it is um, uh, proportionally more impactful in, in our younger patients, for sure. Yeah, and then, you know, this is obviously, it's one of the classic teachings for me, and that is that age, as you age, it tends to be a negative predictor for sudden cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac deaths. And, you know, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, some, what I've also thought of this is that, is it because these patients have self-selected themselves? So there is like a selection bias, you know, for lack of a better word, is that the right way to think about these patients? Cause you know, the ones who are not there are, have gone, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So I I think that there's probably a little bit of everything contributing to it, but you know, it is, um, one of the better things about getting old um, is that the, the risk of um, malignant arrhythmias and sudden death really seems to decrease, you know, particularly after the age of 65 or there, thereabouts. Um, the, the cumulative incidence of um, malignant arrhythmias is really pretty low um, in that population, not zero. So, you know, you still have to be, you know, a bit mindful about it and probably particularly more so in, you know, primary sarcomeric HCM than in non-sarcomeric um, HCM. Um, uh, so, you know, there's no age where you're, you're, you're completely not at risk, but certainly, you know, um, the older you are, and especially if you're older than the age of 65, the incidence of um, sudden death um, tends to be um, lower. Um, and, you know, whether that's um, a selection kind of survival uh, bias or whether, um, you know, just the triggers for ventricular arrhythmias tend to quiet um, later in life, it, you know, I, um, it's hard to know, you know, perhaps a bit of both. Yeah, and you know, for the un- uninitiated audience in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, could you uh, help us differentiate the differences between sarcomeric and, and non-sarcomeric hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in terms of uh, their clinical relevance? I think that'll be helpful mm-hmm. for the audience. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, as you had alluded to before, it's really important to take a good family history. Um, so a, a three-generation um, generation family history and you know, sketch out a pedigree if you can, um, uh, because I can really help visualize uh, if there are uh, particular inheritance patterns, we're looking for autosomal dominant inheritance in um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the, the genetic variety. So half of the um, relatives being affected and, and even distribution between males and females. Um, so, you know, just specifically ask your patients about their siblings, their parents, their kids, their grandparents, um, you know, on both on both sides to see if you can make any um, uh, associations or see any patterns. Um, 
uh, sometimes, uh, you know, your patient may not know that much about their, their family history, but oftentimes there is like the family genealogist that, you know, knows a little bit about um, everybody or has, you know, just much, um, you know, greater familiarity. So trying to find that person and um, engaging them um, to help out. Um, and then specifically um, evaluating first degree relatives, so parents, siblings, children, um, of, of your patient is really important because, um, as you know, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy could be completely asymptomatic and uh, people may be unaware that they have the diagnosis until you um, uh, specifically look at them in family screening. And it's um, not um, uncommon for us to make the um, initial diagnosis of HCM in a, um, in a relative based on, on family screening. So you want to you know, really look for familial disease that increases the, the likelihood of having sarcomeric HCM, of course, if there's a, a um, you know, if there's a, a, a hint that is genetic, um, and um, with genetic testing, you know, 60, 65 percent of the time, we'll find um, a causal sarcomeric variant in um, the context of familial HCM. If there, if there's no obvious family history, about 30 percent of the time, we'll um, uh, we'll find um, a causal sarcomere variant, um, and so. As you said, um, there are implications for the family because if you have evidence of familial disease, um, and you know, um, you know the, the, we really need to look after the at-risk family members and follow them longitudinally, even if they have no evidence of disease um, at first evaluation, and particularly if they're young. Um, that you know, that doesn't mean that they're never going to develop HCM. HCM typically can, starts to emerge um, in late adolescence and in early adulthood, but we can continue to see um, phenotypic evolution, you know, well through middle age. That's so you'll need to serially follow those at-risk relatives. Um, if you have positive genetic testing and find a definitive um, uh, genetic variant, usually a sarcomere variant, um, that um, uh, is a that um, you believe to be you know, um, solidly um, a the cause of HCM in the family, then you can offer predictive genetic testing to the at-risk relatives. So instead of looking at a whole panel of genes um, um, involved with HCM on the initial diagnostic um, genetic testing that you'll perform on the family proban, um, you can um, do much more focused predictive genetic testing on their at-risk relatives um, to answer the question, yes or no, did you inherit the family's variant? If the answer is yes, then they're at risk for developing HCM. It's not a guarantee. There are um, the penetrance is not 100%. There are some sarcomere variant carriers that will go their whole lives without developing overt HCM. But we can't predict who those people might be. So we still need to follow every variant carrier, um, you know, um, longitudinally. But if the answer is no, and you can confirm that they did not inherit their family's um, sarcomere variant, um, then those patients, those individuals can be largely released from that serial follow-up um, because they're not at risk for developing HCM and neither are their children at risk. Um, so that's you know, a nice way to be more definitive about who's at risk and needs um, the serial follow-up and who's not at risk if can be released from follow-up. Um, but we always tell people, you know, they should of course come back um, for evaluation um, um, if they have any clinical change, um, even if they don't carry the, the variant, just because there's there are things that we may not understand about um, HCM. Yeah, so the the uh, subgroup of patients who are genotype positive, phenotype negative, is an interesting subgroup. Um, so do you follow these patients serially? I mean, on a longitudinal basis, like you mentioned, would you get them back every year in clinic to get an echo? Because they could start manifesting the phenotype at, unpredictably at any age, like you said. Exactly. Yeah, the penetrance, um, again, is not 100%. And, and um, you know, uh, in, uh, you know, kind of looking at um, the, um, you know, published um, reports of this, you know, uh, um, overall, the penetrance seems to be, you know, roughly 60 to 70 percent, um, but that's going to be different from family to family. Some families may be, you know, have a higher likelihood of penetrant disease and other families may have lower likelihood. And each individual is also going to have higher or lower a likelihood based on factors that um both genetic and non-genetic that we don't quite understand yet. But yes, and anybody that carries um, a sarcomere variant is at you know much higher risk um, than getting HCM than you know of course the general population um, and should have um, longitudinal serial follow-up. The frequency of follow-up um, depends a bit on the age of the patient and some of the characteristics of the family. Um, you know um, you can try to see if there's a pattern of earlier or later onset disease and that may um, you know help. Um, 
you understand, you know, what the um, each relative may, um, uh, but of course they may follow. Um, in general, um, HCM tends to manifest in, in early adolescence, um, or sorry, in late adolescence or early adulthood. So the frequency of screening is is, is higher um, in, during that age. And so we would typically see um, uh, people every year or two. Um, um, with, you know, for echo and EKG to see if there's any phenotypic evolution, to see if they're transitioning to overt um, HCM. Um, in, um, you know, later in adulthood, you know, you could, um, you know, relax that to every couple, three years um, if they are known to be variant carriers, um, because, you know, uh, it, it, the HCM could, um, you know, could certainly still emerge well through middle age and even the early, you know, 60s or 70s. Um, yes, so so now you have a patient who has an established diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. What are the diagnostic tools that you use for risk stratification? Um, yeah. That's one, you know, the risk stratification for sudden deaths, uh, and then also delineating management strategies for obstructive versus non-obstructive HCM. Um, and I think we can mm -hmm. talk about both, both the subgroups of patients, but how would you risk stratify them for sudden deaths? That's one, and I, I do know that late gadolinium enhancement plays, um, you know, an incremental role in that in in that algorithm. So you know, we'll just go over that for the audience, and then what what are some of the um, paradigms for management of obstructive versus non-obstructive HCM? Yes, yeah, so it's important. An important part of um, caring for patients with HCM is to try to um, predict or stratify their risk for malignant arrhythmias and uh, sudden death um, so that we can try to um, uh, you know, uh, de uh, determine who would most appropriately benefit from um, primary prevention um, ICDs because we can't modify risk, um, but we can re respond to perceived risk by offering um, an ICD in this patient's um, you know, considered to be at increased risk. Um, so the, the typical um, or the standard risk factors that we look for are um, uh, um, the degree of left ventricle hypertrophy with the um, patients with the most pron pronounced um, hypertrophy um, being at higher risk. Um, and uh, typically that's been considered to have a maximal wall thickness of 30 millimeters or more. Um, but, you know, of course it's a continuous metric. Um, and so, you know, th those uh, individuals with, um, the, the, you know, more, um, pronounced degrees of hypertrophy, you would worry about a little bit more, especially if it's getting into the high 20s. Um, if there's a family history of um, sudden death, um, and so there are, it's hard to quantify family history, right? Because you really want to know how many um, um, uh, of the at-risk individuals um, actually had sudden death. And a lot of times we don't know what that denominator is. Um, uh, and um, uh, and, uh, and the degree of relatedness um, probably also uh, plays a role as well. Um, so, you know, the, broadly asking, you know, has there been any family uh, member that's had sudden death? Um, you know, you want to, um, uh, you know, the, the you know, if people are younger, if there's a clear diagnosis of HCM, um, if there weren't any mitigating factors, that would, of course, make you more worried that it was true cardiac arrest related to, to HCM. Um, the European Society of Cardiology has a um, five-year risk um, predictor that uses a regression um, uh, formula to calculate risk. And they have a very uh, specific and stringent definition of family history of sudden death, where um, they count only first-degree relatives. Um, and um, if you have a first-degree relative with a known history of HCM um, that died suddenly, that counts. Um, or if you have a first-degree relative without a known history of HCM but died under the age of 40, so that you know, makes it a little bit more suspicious that it was um, HCM-related sudden death, then that would count. Uh, but if you have multiple second-degree second relatives that died suddenly, that, that wouldn't count. Um, so, you know, so, so you want to consider family history and, again, get a good family history. Um, and... Um, then um, unexplained syncope is also um, a risk predictor, particularly if it's uh, recent. And again, you need to um, you know dig deep and get a good um, uh, description of the syncope event um, and you know, try to um, ascertain whether it's um, truly worrisome for um, a ventricular arrhythmia or if it sounded more like it was situational. Um, 
And then other risk modifiers include non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. Um, so periodic ambulatory telemetry um, should be performed both to look for atrial fibrillation uh, because um, the presence of atrial fibrillation in a patient with um, HCM would um, mandate um, consideration of the anticoagulation because um, there are increased risk for thromboembolic um, complications regardless of CHADS vascular score. Um, and then also to um, evaluate for ambient non-sustained VT. Um, and the definition of non-sustained VT is a triplet at 120 beats a minute. So that's not a very high bar um, to be counted as non-sustained VT. So we would tend to be more worried about um, non-sustained VT that's faster, uglier, longer um, in, in, and associated with symptoms. Um, so that's another um, important factor to think about. Um, Lake gadolinium enhancement is another risk modifier. Um, if there's um, in, uh, extensive late gadolinium enhancement, and that would be something else that might work as a risk modifier or a tiebreaker um, in patients um, otherwise at somewhat ambiguous risk. Um, and the presence of apical aneurysm, so true apical aneurysm with transmural late gadolinium enhancement um, is also associated with increased risk. So those are the risk factors that we look for. Um, and you can also use the, the risk calculator that's um, that was developed by the European Society of Cardiology and also externally validated. Um, and there are a number of ways that you can look that up online um, uh, through um, the, that, the ESC directly or through um, AHA ACC um, guidelines. Um, um, and that calculates a five-year risk. Um, and it takes into account the age um, that you're calculating the risk, um, the um, you know exact um, numeric value of wall thickness, um, the numeric value of alpha tract obstruction, the left atrial size and AP diameter, um, and also um, yes, no answers to family history of sudden death, syncope, um, or um, non-sustained VT. It'll pop out a five-year risk prediction. Um, if the um, risk is less than 4% and that person is considered to be at low risk, um, you know, I see generally not considered. If the um, risk is between four to six percent, um, the individual is considered at intermediate risk. You know, could consider ICD. Um, and if that risk is over six percent, then that individual is considered at uh, high risk. Um, ICD should be considered. Um, um, and so that's uh, another thing that can be uh, integrated into the conversation um, about um, sudden death risk assessment um, with your patient to try to better contextualize and quantify um, their risk. But basically trying to um, stratify patients into low, medium, and high risk. Um, of course, if anybody's had um, uh, an event that, you know, you'd be in the realm of secondary prevention and, um, and very high risk and you know, moving forward with ICD, but otherwise just trying to stratify into low, medium, high risk. Um, um, uh, you know, with you know, with you know the analogous uh, uh, accompanying um, recommendations for primary prevention ICD. It's and it's important to really make sure that your patient is well informed about this. You know, uh, understand that these are these are just estimates. We um, they're they work reasonably well, um, not spectacularly well at the population level, um, but it's really much harder to predict. There own individual specific risk, um, you know, separate from the population risk that, you know, the scores and, and all of this are, are based on. Um, so it's important to that they understand, you know, what we do and what we don't know about risk prediction and to help them understand, you know, um, how they feel about risks, um, both, you know, the the risk of sudden death, which sometimes can be, you know, difficult to quantify, especially if you're in that intermediate, you know, uh, zone, um, not clearly high, not clearly low, um, um, so, you know, how do they feel about that risk versus the risk um, associated with having an ICD implanted? You know, the, the subcutaneous ICD, you know, has a slightly lower risk profile um, than, a, the, the, than the standard transvenous ICD, but still, you know, um, uh, you know, risks related to having uh, the procedures and having an implanted device. So trying to help your patients understand, you know, what risk makes them more uncomfortable or what, you know, how they would like to um proceed and what you know, decision um, is most um, resonant with their own philosophy and, and approach towards life and recognizing that things may change over time. Um, you know, their perception of risk and their, um, you know, acceptance of an ICD may change um, you know, depending on you know, life circumstances. Um, and so, you know, typically if somebody is at low risk, we, we would not um, push hard for an ICD and, you know, typically would just continue um, 
periodic risk stratification to see if anything's changing over time. Um, if somebody's at high risk, um, we would have a more um, serious conversation about, um, you know, concerns for um, risk of, of sudden death. Um, and then in the, in the media zone, you know, it's, a, it's um, an important um, opportunity for shared decision making. Yes, a couple of follow-up questions to, to what you just described, and that was an excellent description for risk stratification for sudden death. Thank you for that. One is uh, for those of us who specifically are uh, focusing on particular numbers in the cardiovascular magnetic resonance imaging report, um, many times readers would document percentage burden of LGE. Is there a threshold for that? That's, that's one question. You did mention about apical aneurysms. Um, do apical aneurysms heighten the risk for sudden death in these patients? Uh, you know, those are the two follow-up questions that I have for you um, with regard to risk stratification. Yeah. So um, the threshold of 15% um, LGE, so, um, so the LGE um, burden, you know, occupying 15% of the left ventricular mass is um, the, the threshold that's been um, suggested. Um, that's a lot of LGE. You know, it's pretty unusual to see somebody with that much LGE. And LGE is also difficult to quantify. Um, um, and not something that a clinical lab will routinely do. You know, sometimes you can ask your readers to, um, you know, quantify that. Um, but, you know, we also, there are also several different ways uh, to quantify LGE. Um, um, and, uh, and there may be subtle differences depending on the method that's used to quantify um, LGE, but 15% is, is generally um, what um, has been used as the threshold for extensive. Um, and in terms of apical aneurysm, there has been um, in uh, you know, case series, um, there does seem to be increased risk for um, uh, uh, ventricular arrhythmias in patients with apical aneurysms. And again, you want to look for truly, and not just some, you know, apical dyskinesis, but like true thinning and um, transmural um, like gadolinium um, enhancement. Um, uh, and there does um, there has been an, an association with an increased risk of ventricular arrhythmias. These are the um, rare patients that might have recurrent um, monomorphic BT. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, you know, you know, pres presumably with a, a scar-based trigger, um, either for um, reentry or um, enhanced automaticity. And so, it's, um, these are the patients who might have recurrent um, ATP or ICD um, shocks um, because of. Um, uh, you know, recurrent episodes of VT. Otherwise, it's quite unusual for patients with with patients that have recurrent um, uh, VT. So, if you have a trans, uh, if you have an apical aneurysm, that's somebody that you might want to think about um, using a transvenous ICD rather than a subcutaneous ICD to allow for um, ATP, recognizing that they may be at increased risk for um, recurrent episodes. Um, moving on to managing these patients, um, so, you know, obstructive versus non-obstructive. I think, you know, for me as a clinician, non-obstructive is a more difficult group to manage compared with obstructive. When we talk about risk stratification for sudden deaths, talk about screening, like you mentioned, you know, get genetic testing. Um, what else to do for mitigating symptoms of, uh, you know, exertional dyspnea or shortness of breath because they are fairly limited. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we don't yet have, you know, great medical or interventional therapies for non-obstructive HCM. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, a great area of unmet need. Uh, so um, it's important to to look carefully for obstruction um, and really um, because, you know, we, there are just so many more uh, treatment options available for obstructive HCM. So um, if you have a symptomatic patient that doesn't have obvious obstruction at rest or even doing a valsalvum maneuver during echo or um, standing from squat in the, in the office, I find that, that that's oftentimes the most reliable way to provoke obstruction in the office. Um, you want to do exercise testing to see if um, a gradient develops um, with physiologic stress of, 
uh, exercise. That's probably the best way to provoke um, obstruction. Um, so look hard for obstruction, um, you know, because you want to make sure that you are taking advantage of um, the uh, treatment options available for obstructive HCM that aren't yet available for non-obstructive HCM. Um, and with non-obstructive HCM, we're, we're stuck with diuretics for decongestion if, if there's evidence of congestion. Um, and the most symptomatic patients, you know, tend to have restrictive physiology or, you know, perhaps also um, issues with mild, um, you know, abnormal myocardial energetics um, um, that <clears throat> are contributing to their symptoms and that, you know, can be very difficult to treat and, um, you know, severely symptomatic patients oftentimes um, uh, move on towards needing more advanced um, heart failure uh, management, um, uh, you know, including, you know, potentially transplantation uh, because there's just not a great way to address um, their their symptom burden. Um, you know, oftentimes we'll do right heart catheterization. Um, sometimes we'll even use CardioMEMS device to try to um, uh, more um, finely uh, manage patients, but they can be really um, tricky and challenging. Um, for obstructive HCM, um, you know, the first line therapy is still um, beta blockers or calcium channel blockers to try to um, decrease heart rate, allow more time for diastolic filling well for the biggest um, LV um, uh, uh, volumes um, to try to, um, uh, you know, just physically um, um, reduce um, the tendencies for obstruction and also to try to um, decrease contractility to the extent that they can um, to, again, try to like, reduce the drive for obstruction. Um, if patients continue to have um, refractory limiting symptoms despite um, calcium channel blocker or beta blocker, um, the, now we have more choices. Um, we can try disapiramide um, uh, uh, for its more potent negative inotropic um, properties. Um, people can um, be limited by this because of the um, uh, the anticholinergic side effects that are associated with isopyramide. Um, they're also frustrating uh, shortages, uh, particularly of the long-acting formulation that occur you know, um, periodically. Um, or we can think about um, invasive cephal reduction therapy, either cephalomyectomy um, um, or in the right patient, the alcohol cephalomyelation, um, or now uh, myosin inhibitors um, with mavicantin being the FDA approved um, um, uh, option for, um, for uh, medical management of, of obstruction with more potent um, ability to reduce obstruction um, and, um, and improve symptoms and functional capacity and quality of life. Um, so in, in the management algorithm or in the, uh, you know, the, now that we have a new uh, drug in the armamentarium for managing uh, patients with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, when would you start initiating or having a conversation about myosin inhibition in these patients? Because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm certain that part of the discussion has to be, you know, this can actually reduce systolic performance of the left ventricle, which is what we're trying to establish. Right, so there has to be, um, uh, there has to be that discussion that needs to have had with the patient, and then, you know, following these patients with serial echocardiograms. Do you want to just mm -hmm. um, go over that briefly? I, I know th this could be a conversation in and of itself, but you know, at least for um, you know people who are tuning in and listening to a new option, what are some of the mm -hmm. checklist, you know, brief points they should keep in mind? before initiating or thinking about initiating this, this new treatment paradigm in patients with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Yeah, so this is also an important opportunity, you know, to engage with patient and for shared decision making so um, people know what the options are that are available. Um, and so if, uh, you know, standard first line therapy of beta blockers or calcium channel blockers don't seem to be um, uh, adequately effective or are, um, you know, met with intolerance, um, then we can move on to the next um, tier, um, which would be invasive septal reduction therapy or um, cardiac myosin inhibitors and having a discussion with patients about how they feel about, you know, you know, you know, moving directly to um, a procedure versus um, a, a medical option. Um, and if, if people are interested in, um, um, myosin inhibitors, you know, again, Mavicantin um, was approved, but with a REMS um, program um, required, so a risk evaluation mitigation strategy um, required by the FDA so that patients, providers, and the um, providing pharmacy all have to be REMS um, certified um, uh, 
um, you know, which, you know, meaning, you know, interacting with the program, you know, um, in, um, uh, you know, completing the requirements for um, being um, entered into the REMS program. Uh, and then patients um, have to have ECHOs every four weeks for the first 12 weeks, um, and then every 12 weeks thereafter um, to monitor for um, uh, reduction in LVEF and also to monitor um, for the impact on obstruction. And you cannot um, up titrate the dose until after the first 12 weeks have, have passed. Um, and this is you know, based on you know, the myosin inhibitors being myosin inhibitors, right? So they will decrease cardiac contractility. Um, that's part of their mechanism of action. And there's you know, luckily a, a, you know, a good window of you know, the amount of um, reduction in cardiac contractility that's needed is relatively minor compared with the amount of um, relief of obstruction that's um, obtained. So in the trials, the LVEF typically dropped by about four percentage points. So like if you started with an LVEF of 70%, it would go down to 66%. Um, and with that, you know, relatively modest um, decrease in um, ejection fraction, there was you know, quite a substantial reduction in, in gradient and with this um, you know, symptoms and functional capacity improvement, um, you know, based on the, the gradient reduction. Um, in a small proportion of patients, um, less than 10% of patients, um, there was a more pronounced um, impact on LVEF with a um, of the EF reduction less than 50%, um, which is reversible after medications are stopped and then doses can be re reduced. Um, um, but because of that, um, and because of the relative inexperience with these um, agents, um, that's you know, why the REMS program was, um, was mandated by the, the FDA so that we can keep close track of it. Uh, in terms of uh, like long-term follow-up strategies, and you know, I'm going to in the you know, final few minutes for the podcast, um, also discuss how you broach the topic of exercise training with these patients. I know there was a recent study from Yale which actually mm -hmm. showed that exercise is safe in these patients. Mm -hmm. um, the, and this is this is something which I've struggled with personally in clinic. Is that on because you know you diagnose someone with heart disease, it's heart disease, and then they're like, "Doc, we hear on the radio." Or the TV all the time that exercise is good for you, and you're, you're telling us quite the opposite now. Exercise is good for everyone, of course. You know, is is one of one of the uh, important lifestyle modifiers, certainly for for preventing, you know, atherosclerotic heart disease, which is what we see as cardiologists most commonly, just because of the sheer burden of, of disease. Um, what what do you tell patients with HCM about exercise, and how do you follow them longitudinally in clinic? Once you've established a diagnosis and have them on stable medical therapy or have offered them, you know, septal reduction or even myosin inhibition now as a therapeutic uh, option. Yeah, yeah, exercise is good for you. <laughs> you know, there's, you know, very few instances in medicine where exercise is bad for you and, and that benefit extends to patients with, with HCM. Um, uh, I think that where the concern was started was, um, or on, um, you know, autopsy series on athletes with um, that suffered sudden death, and to, you know, to try to uncover, you know, what might have led to that athlete's sudden death. Um, and um, in these early series, you know, um, you know, back 20, 30 years ago, um, there seemed to be a preponderance of um, previously unrecognized HCM being discovered on autopsy, you know, accounting for maybe 25 to 30% of athletic sudden death. Um, but there have been subsequent studies on NCAA athletes and military recruits at a much greater scale, which showed um, that there's just a, a wide spectrum of um, of conditions um, that can be associated with um, uh, sudden death in these otherwise young, healthy people, of which um, HCM was not the, the leading um, candidate anymore. You know, HCM was found in 10% you know, or less of the, the population, of, you, know, and, and, you know, a small slice of pie in a very big pie um, chart with lots of slices, and um, you know, uh, frequently without any cause being identified. Um, and then there have been several studies, including a small randomized trial of it, um, moderate exercise um, uh, um, training, um, the RESET study, and more recently, the um, observational live HCM study, which was trying to look at the impact of um, exercise um, on patients with HCM and found that even in um, self um, uh, 
categorized uh, vigorous exercisers, um, so um, individuals that are exercising more than six METs on a regular basis, um, 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 did not have any um, uh, signal for um, harm and for an increased um, arrhythmias. Um, so that, you know, providing more assurance that um, exercise um, is not unduly unsafe in um, patients with HCM um, and um, the benefits of exercise you know, extend um, across um, the spectrum of patients um, with HCM. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, allowing us to, you know, really encourage our, our patients uh, to exercise and try to you know, enjoy those, those benefits. I think that, um, you know, we've historically, you know, may have uh, caused more harm than the good, um, you know, um, uh, in our well-intentioned efforts to um, reduce um, the potential risk for sudden death. You know, initially it was, um, uh, the recommendations were for competitive athletes um, to, you know, if they're if you had a patient with HCM that was a competitive athlete, they were discouraged from competitive athletics. Um, but that, you know, then creeped into like any type of athletics or any physical activity, and that you know has contributed to sedentary lifestyles and obesity um, in patients with HCM, which is not good for for anybody. So. Um, you know, again, um, you know, more evidence that's been accruing over the years um, to uh, help us encourage our patients to enjoy the healthy benefits of exercise. And so in general, it's been a great time to be involved with HCM because we've had, you know, um, you know, more better quality, uh, better uh, powered, um, high quality, large um, data sets um, to look at, you know, looking at all these um, you know, important questions in HCM. Um, and also new therapeutic um, options that are available that just had, you know, now, you know, immediate practical effect into the management of um, symptomatic obstructive HCM and also being evaluated in non-obstructive HCM, both myosin inhibitors and also um, SGLT2 inhibitors soon to come. Excellent. Well, Dr. Ho, this has been a fascinating discussion, uh, very detailed and uh, thank you for your expertise and thank you for um, going over with us the um, you know overview of diagnosis and and uh, also management you know of this uh, this complex um, cardiomyopathy um, and to those who are listening you know please share your feedback with us we take feedback very seriously again this is a mini series so we'll be following with two more episodes which are focused on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy um, and um, you know if you have any questions or um, if you want specific questions that need to be answered from our experts, then feel free to, you know, share those questions with us, uh, you know, either on social media or, uh, you know, in the email address, which is listed in the show notes. Um, do rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. Um, and uh, we'll see you back again another Monday. Thank you for tuning in. Great. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.